My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Uh, Some of you know, many of you know, most of you know, I'm sure not all of you know, but Monday through Friday, my work is to travel around the Northwest and to work with churches, train pastors. On the weekends, I get to share God's word. I'll be doing that the next couple of weeks, uh, three weeks in Acts. I love it. It's so good. This, this stuff's great. Uh, it was so great to hear Taylor preach and, um, you know, just kind of share that passion that God's put in him for the, the church and then also Shane as well. Pastor Francis is going to be preaching in, in a number of weeks and we're just really excited about what God's doing here. In the last couple of weeks, I've had the privilege of being all over. I have been as far down as Klamath Falls, all up along the I-5 corridor. Um, I've been up, up in the Seattle area. This last week, I was in Fairbanks, Anchorage, Sitka, Alaska. Beautiful places. Actually, really overcast, so I couldn't see the sky. Uh, but beautiful people. Worked with churches, leadership teams, with pastors. And uh, this week, I'm out at the coast. Uh, I'm down in uh, south of Eugene. And then I'm in Portland training a, a group of future pastors. And I, I just love that. But I want to tell you, there's no place like home. Let me click my heels together quickly. Uh, <laughs> three times because there's no place like home. I love you. Uh, this is the, I think we'll probably take this off the podcast because I don't want anybody to hear this, but you're the best church on the planet. I really thank you. Um, I didn't say best looking church. I said the best church because what happens here moves my heart when we come and we sing and we hear God's word. And there are a lot of great churches out there, but a lot of churches are struggling They're struggling with uh, trying to get momentum, trying to reach their community. Uh, Pastors are transitioning out. Pastors are aging over time, and people are not filling back in. And I I don't know. I I mean, if you were to evaluate my last two weeks, I I know there's hope for the church in the Northwest, but it it, it aches. My heart aches for that. Because I've been in, last week um, I preached, my wife and I went up to uh, Washington, preached at a little church about 100, 120, and uh, just kind of shared God's word and uh, tried to encourage them. And, you know, I've been in churches that are large. I've, I've been a part of churches that are 3,000, and that's exciting, and that's a lot. And I've been as small as churches of 30. Um, you know, I don't know what you think and what your opinion is or what your preference is about the size of your church, but churches come in all shapes and sizes. There are large churches, there are medium churches, there are small churches, uh, there are churches of all kinds of flavors, and I love the variety and diversity of that. But we all have a preference. We all have a desire. Uh, when I think about the large churches that I've been at where they, they do have 3,000 plus in their congregations, there's energy, there's excitement. When I think of the small churches I've been at with 30 people, it's so precious. They, they have 
positives and negatives. Um, the 3,000 member church was in America in a big, you know, huge building with a lot of lights and things like that. And it was just a nice structure. And then the 30 person one was in Africa, East Africa under a shade tree. And there's something beautiful about that. Last couple of years going to Cuba, seeing the people there, got to uh, go and be a part of one of the pastors we've trained who has a, a little, just maybe 20 person church, rickety old wood building up in the hills of Cuba. I love the church because it's what God gave his son, Jesus Christ to come and die for. But we all have preferences and sometimes that can help or hinder us. Sometimes it can get in the way of what God wants to do. I know that as God has been a part of growing Sunrise Church, 25 years ago when I showed up and 21 years ago when I was privileged to become your senior pastor, we were 158 people that year. Uh, in the years to follow, we grew to 1850 with multiple campuses and ministries and we were able to birth off a really actually technically on the scale, a large church out in Forest Grove, Old Town with Pastor Rudy and Zach and they're thriving and doing good work out there. We've been a part of planting uh, Hispanic ministries. Last Sunday night, uh, we were with Nelson as he was down in Woodburn planting, once again planting a Hispanic church. He did that 10 years ago here. We've been a part of some wild and crazy things like the ex-prisoner ministry of Light My Way. And um, God is good, but every one of us has preferences about styles, maybe of songs. Last week I preached in the King James uh, because that's their church. And so I like, I got no problem. I, I came to Christ on King James, shockingly so. Um, I didn't understand most of it, but that doesn't bother me at all. Some people like NIV, and I don't care about that. Some people like hymns. Last week, it was all hymns. We sang a chorus from 1976. That's okay. That's beautiful. That's beautiful because that church is expressing its worship of God. Now, what concerns me, though, for any church, Sunrise included, is that we're not just doing it here. And it's not just about us, but it's about reaching the people that have yet to come to Jesus Christ. I don't think there's a perfect sized church, but I do have an important question for you. And it's this, does God want his church to grow? Absolutely. The Bible, that, I mean, Jesus came, he died for our sins he rose again, and he gave us a commandment, a commission to go out and make disciples of all the nations, right? So inherent with who we are, our very nature and character is that we are to be a multiplying community. We're to go out and share this message. It's called the good news, and there's a reason it's good news, because it is. It's the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, in the book of Acts, you know, we're going to see this in the weeks to come. We saw in Acts 2, the church grew from 120 to 3,000. We saw that last week. Imagine that, 120 to 3,000. That would be insane. And then we see in the next one in Acts 4, the church grew to about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So 10, 15, 20,000. That is unbelievable. And then in Acts 5, it says this, the crowds of people. So more people, crowds of people were believing who heard the word. Then in Acts 6, we see this, the believers rapidly multiplied. And really, it was only about that time that there was a lot of rumblings of discontent because people aren't being served, you know, and people are being overlooked, and there's a little bit of racial discrimination going on at this time. And so the apostles do some things and appoint uh, leaders of servants. And then finally, we see at Acts 9, the church grew in strength and numbers. There's a continual, perpetual growth. You get to the bottom of the book of Acts, Acts 21, where the apostle Paul comes back from his missionary journeys and they comment to him how many, how many thousands of Jews have believed. 
including priests, you know, people who were a part of putting Jesus to death. How many thousands? That word, interestingly enough, is in the original language, the Greek language, is where we get the word myriad, which means tens of thousands, or we just can't count that high, okay? Imagine a church with a role, they're like, we just give up. Forget the database, it will break, and so forget that. We just have too many to count. That was that church. Now, I, I don't think that, and we never see that in the rest of history as the model for the church, but we do see growth as a model for church. We do see strength. There's nothing necessarily wrong with a big church. There's nothing necessarily wrong with a small church. My passion is for a church to be healthy. And if a church is healthy, I believe it's going to grow. Uh, it might go through difficulties. It will go through difficulties. It will go through changes. And we used to say this as one of our mantras, growth brings change. Change brings loss and loss brings pain. And nobody signs up for pain, right? We come to church to be warm, right? And comforted. You know, we, we come to church so things don't change in a rapidly changing world. And yet, when God brings growth, there's tremendous change. And that means some pain and some loss. Which brings really to my question that I want to ask you. Not does God want my church to grow, but do I want my church to grow? Really? Do I want my church? And that sounds very individualistic, but I think that's the point. Am I willing to give up my preferences, my, my desires to see people who have yet to come to Christ actually come? I was talking with somebody yesterday and he had gone in and done a church assessment and he stood there and, and this is tragic, to an older group of people who were clinging on to the church, refused to change, 75 plus years old. And the guy said, would you be willing to change the style of your singing so that your grandkids could come to Christ? And the lady said, no. You know, do you want your church to grow? Because we all have something we would say no to. I mean, if it meant giving up your seat or your parking spot or your comfort of a service time or activities or your favorite thing or changing something, not doctrinal things, not unchangeable things, but the preferential things. Would you be willing to say, you know, I care more for people who are lost and hurting and broken? See, that's why Sunrise has grown is because we, we, we've been willing to be uncomfortable. We've been willing to give up our desires, which sometimes can be just that, just desires, sometimes good, sometimes petty, so that other people could hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that we would get out of our comfort zone do I want to fulfill the mission that Jesus gave me, should be the question, to make disciples? Am I willing to do whatever it takes to see the least, the last, and the lost come to faith? Every time I open the book of Acts, I'm so amazed that God used an untrained group of people. The, the leaders will see this in a couple of weeks. They marvel the, the apostles. They're just untrained fishermen, unschooled, you know? Uh, it's not that they were foolish. It's just that they didn't have the theological pedigree that the Pharisees and the scholars had of their day. And yet God's Holy Spirit, when he showed up in normal people, oh, when he shows up in normal people, anything's possible. You may not be trained in any biblical theology or pastoral ministry, 
But when you open yourself up to God's spirit, he will do an amazing work. I was just talking to a friend yesterday and he's not been trained in theology or pastoral ministry and he's sharing his faith with a non-believer very, very far from God. On the outside, very scary looking and yet he's just loving this person towards Jesus. Would you be willing to do that? Because every time I read the book of Acts, I see this beautiful ongoing picture The simple truth is when the gospel message, the good news message of Jesus Christ comes into a culture, the church is born, and then that church goes back and reaches those people with the very gospel that they were saved with. Now, last week, we looked at Acts chapter 2 and that first sermon and Peter standing up, and so we're going to build on that in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, grab it, open up to Acts 2. Really, the passage is 42 to 47. We're going to dip into 41, and I was uh, really excited about that as our precursor to this, and the verses are on the screen, and this is what it says. It says, those who believed what Peter said. Remember, as Taylor preached last week, uh, Peter preached this message and connected the dots of the Old Testament to Jesus and everything in the plan of salvation. And those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. Now, I like to dig into words. I like to study words. The word believed there simply means to come to believe something to be true and to respond accordingly. It's not a head knowledge. Uh, It's easy to come to church and have head knowledge about Jesus. You could fill out a doctrinal questionnaire and get all the answers right, but still not believe. Because it's more than a head, it's a heart, it's a receive, it's to lean on to put your trust in. I'm so glad people every week, we get about 1,000 to 1,200 people that come to church here every week. But what I really want to see is everybody coming to Christ. Because there is a distinction. I'm glad you're here at church. But don't stop there. Come to Christ. Because to believe means to put your faith into action, to lean into, to trust, to respond, to embrace wholeheartedly. Those who believe what Peter said were baptized, we get that. We do that anytime people come to faith and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. Now, in the New Living, it doesn't say this, but actually it's 3,000 souls. 3,000 souls. What is a soul? A moral being designed for everlasting life. Not an eternal one. It has a beginning, but it doesn't have an end. I was on a plane recently, and I was sitting in the back, the cheap seats, uh, way back in the back by the bathroom. And and as I'm sitting there, and the plane is ready to take off, I hear uh, the stewardess, the gal there, she radioed up to the pilot, and she said, I forget the number, but it was like 198. She said, sir, we have 198 souls on board. I thought, woo started to cry. I thought, these are souls. These aren't just people. These are souls. These are eternal in the sense that they'll ever last their death. I mean, they will last forever. Everybody you come in contact with this week is a soul. Now, we know in the Bible that in the very beginning, it says in Genesis that God took Adam and made him out of the dirt and the dust and And that explains pretty much everything about us. Um, And then he breathed into us the breath of life and we became a living soul. The soul is the immaterial part of us. There's the physical part, immaterial part. And and, um, that soul is designed to last forever. And so you never make eye contact with a person who is not a soul, who will live forever somewhere. And we're all designed to live forever somewhere. In fact, God says we were made in that passage in Genesis, that we were made in his image. The Imago Dei, it's called, in the very likeness of God. 
And, and I know we've marred that, we've broken that, we've blown that up in some more than others, but the fact is we're all far from that perfect picture, but we're still loved by God. And you never lock eyes with someone who is not dearly loved by God in spite of their sin, in spite of their rebellion, in spite of the wrath that will come down on them if they reject him. God loves them. I gotta tell you this to much shame. Last Saturday night, I was just getting a couple things ready for my trip to Washington to preach. And so I came in on Saturday night and I, I walked in, my wife dropped me off and, and I walk over and I'm headed to the building and I'm walking along the sidewalk and cross over the grass and somebody walks by me and to my shame, I'll confess my sin to you right now. I thought, Lord, I don't want a conversation because I just want to get in, print my stuff, put the slide. I just want to be done. Your pastor's a selfish jerk, by the way, in case you didn't know that. <clears throat> And this guy stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, hey, is this, uh, is this where AA meets? And I go, yeah. And I'm like, man, I'm such a jerk. I cared more about my thing than a person, a soul. I got to meet him. His name was Scotty, and I heard a story a little bit and walked him over, heard some of his challenges, introduced him to the AA leader. He's a friend of mine, believer here. And uh, I walked away with excitement, but filled with shame that, man, sometimes I get so busy, I don't see souls. And I know I'm the only one in the room like that. <clears throat> My friends, lost people matter to God. Do they matter to you? Because I believe that souls could come to faith this very week if we step out with the Holy Spirit's power. Well, so that's that precursor to the message. It really then starts in Acts 2.42, and, and it says this, all the believers then, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. Now, the word devoted there, devoted themselves, is the idea to continue to endure, remain, persist in, cling faithfully to someone or insist on something. Even in our language, to devote means to lean towards, to lean into, right? When you're devoted to something, a cause, you lean into it. Uh, you're, you're always thinking about it. You're passionate about it. When you're devoted to a person, you lean into them, literally, physically lean into them, and you're passionate about that relationship. You know, the reality is these early believers leaned in on things. They themselves were devoted, and they focused on things. And as a result of this, this church was alive with God's spirit, and the buzz was incredible. It was a church that was on fire for Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit working. We're going to see how that works. But I want us to catch the fact that I believe it's because they were this. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And, and the apostles' teaching, it's, it's interesting. It's just a simple word. It means doctrine, uh, didache. In the early church before the New Testament was written, uh, the apostles stood up and they taught. They taught about what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had witnessed. People were hungry for hearing about Jesus. Some maybe had seen Jesus, been a part of the miracles. But as the church got older and older in the decades to follow, some had never seen Jesus. And so they really hung on every word of the apostles. And then the apostles started to die off. And those apostles that were chosen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those guys that wrote the letters, the gospels that we now have, the book of Acts, those were written down. But in the middle of all that, 
the people began to compile the apostles' teaching, and it was put into a little booklet. You can get it free on the internet. It's called the Didache, and it's 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 fine. It, basically, it's like an owner's manual. You know, you find in the glove box of your Christian life. It's like your membership class, and it's really cool. <clears throat> I've read it. I've got a copy, and um, all it is is the teaching of Jesus. There's nothing you know new in there. It's just they summed it up in a couple pages worth before the New Testament was finalized, and it's this idea that this is what it's like to be in the family of God. This is who Jesus is. They were devoted to that. Think about that. They didn't just dabble in the Bible. They desired it internally. They devoted themselves to God's word. Today, we're so blessed to have the totality of God's word from Genesis to the book of maps. It's amazing, you know? We've got all of this stuff. The plan of God, although some is pretty mysterious and some is, you know, unbelievably just heartbreaking to see the stories in the Old and New Testament. Some is so passionate as we hear about what God does in us when we surrender to him. But we have God's word. I've got God's word on my phone, on my tablet. I mean, I carry it with me all the time. I'm sure you do too. Do we devote ourselves to it, though? Do we hunger for it? Do we long for it? Do we long for it like, you know, we get up and eat breakfast long for it, or a lunch, a meal, a dinner, or a relationship? Is it alive? It is alive. It's alive in us. Do we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching? They were regularly focused on it because the early church made more than converts, my friends. They made disciples, and disciples are devoted to Jesus. They were eyewitnesses, and they, they wanted to know what What does our master say about this? What is your devotion level to the word? Then it says they devote themselves to fellowship. And fellowship, uh, if you're a good Baptist, means potlucks, right? In a fellowship hall. Well, I I like potlucks as much as the next guy. Not as much as my wife, but as much as the next guy. Uh, But the idea here is a, a contribution, a participation. The idea is simply they had something in common. And, and the word is koinonia or this close relationship, this fellowship of coming together. It was more than just having meetings. It was they were so passionate about what God was doing in their heart and the fellowship that they came together and they talked and they shared. They shared life together. This early church, because so many had come from around the world, they were actually living together and they were selling their homes and giving things away and people were opening up their doors and and it was just an exploded church and they were devoting themselves to fellowship. They were sharing their meals. They were sharing their goods and supplies, everything they had. And, you know, in the New Testament, later on, as it's all written, we see over 50 times commands that can only be obeyed in fellowship. The one another is to love one another, to serve one another in love, to pray for one another, to submit to one another, to share with one another. All these things must be done in fellowship. How devoted, how much do you lean into others? Um, The early church we'll see in a bit, and and at sunrise, the apostles' teaching is primarily on the weekends, you know, we could say, but the the fellowship is in the small groups. If you're not in a small group, I don't know how you get fellowship. Maybe you grab, you know, some friends and you have coffee or you have meetings or whatever, that's a small group, but some kind of way you devote to fellowship. And they devoted to sharing in meals, and and I like how the New Living says it because it was an agape meal that wrapped up with the Lord's Supper, communion. And it wasn't just a, you know, three-hour Lord's Supper kind of thing. Um, it was a meal of fellowship, of sharing goods, of a table, of eating together. There's something great that happens over meals, right? And um, that's why I struggle to lose weight, because I have a lot of meetings, and they're all over meals. And, and it's good, right? 
It's, it's good. You eat and you get to know someone. What's better is when you open your home and the meal is on your ta- at your table, right? And you share your life with someone. So they were doing this, this agape meal, this feast. They would come together in this big old massive potluck and they would, they would wrap it up and they would finalize it with the Lord's Supper, which is the whole purpose and reason we're here, is that Christ came, God in the flesh. He, he loved us and yet his love meant that he would die for us on a cross carrying the weight of our sins, shedding his blood to cover our sins. And he was buried and he rose again. And not only did he rise again, he ascended to the Father in heaven. He is praying for us. He's preparing a place for us. And he will come back to get us. And so in the meantime, Jesus says, remember this, remember me. And so that's what we do every week here. It's an important thing. It's the reason we have church is to remember what Jesus has done. And then finally, they devote themselves to prayer. Prayer, not just because there's a prayer list and not just praying for Fluffy's paw, but you know what I mean? Some serious, significant prayers. I love every morning I open up the prayer list. Every week, the prayers that you drop in the cards or that you email in or you call in, get on a PDF list. It's in my Dropbox, saved on my iPad and my phone. Everywhere I go, I can pray for you. And as I read, then spend about a half hour reading the Bible and a half hour praying for you, that's part of it. You can do that. You can join that prayer list and pray. Um, the early church was a praying church. My friend D, he's a pastor down in Jefferson. I love him. He says it this way, much prayer, much blessing, little prayer, little blessing, no prayer, no blessing. And I'm greedy for blessing. So <laughs> I want to pray, right? Now let's stop for just a moment and think about this. It's easy. It's easy. Trust me, I know this. It's easy for you to evaluate the church and go, well, I wonder how our teaching is today. I'll give it a five, you know, out of 10 or whatever. Sharing fellowship, yeah, I, I, got, I got, you know, I'm kind of busy. I got to get going. I have a 1030, you know, brunch in Portland with mimosas. You know, it's kind of what everybody's doing, I guess, these days. Sharing in meals, you know, I, you, I don't really want anybody in my house or, you know, I, I don't have time to hang out and, and do that. I, I've got, I've just got so many responsibilities. Prayer. Yeah, I shoot a prayer out, you know, when I'm driving on 26, of course, you know, we all pray when we're doing that, you know, or on TV highway or when there's a test, you know, at school. And it's easy to say, I wonder how my church is doing in this and evaluate our church. But my friends, in this sense, there is no church. There's you. Okay. Because if you're doing these things and we're doing these things, you know, it's not that the apostles came on and cracked a whip and developed programs and organized programs and organized these things. This just came out of people. That people themselves, they themselves were doing this. And as a result, the church looked like this. And if there's ever going to be any of this or more of this or an outstanding amount of this, it's not because we create opportunities. It's because it's just so flourishing in you that it is an outgrowth of who we are. And all of a sudden we are. And we can program some of those things, and that's great. But a program won't move a heart. A person will, and that's you. When you're devoted to God's word, when you're devoted to the fellowship, when you're devoted to the sharing of meals and the Lord's Supper, when you're devoted to prayer, we are as a church congregation. So look in the mirror on that one. And the result is this. It says a deep, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. I don't know if we can get that on the screen. 
That's a great text. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. It says they worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now, this is a beautiful, beautiful snapshot of the first church and how it lived and how it breathed. Followers of Jesus met in the temple in the large groups for the teaching, and there was fellowship there, but they met in small groups and homes for fellowship and for meals and prayer. The church experienced spiritual growth and experienced numerical growth, and I firmly believe uh, when it comes to health, uh, a, a church that emphasizes strong worship and fervent prayer, biblical teaching, caring compassion, in an atmosphere of true fellowship is healthy and evangelism will happen. That will be an attractive group of people. A healthy Christian community will attract people to Christ. The early, world, early church turned the world upside down because of these devotions. Now, um, I'm absolutely a geek, and I'll tell you this, but I love reading history, and I love seeing, especially the first 300 years of the church, and I want to share with you a little bit about what people at that time and people since then have said about how that church did what it did, because in 300 years, it turned the world upside down. I mean that literally. From 120 believers to overthrowing an empire with the gospel message of Christ. In 300 years, amidst incredible persecution and challenges, how did it happen? What made the Christian community so different from the religious culture around them? It's a historical fact. It is a fact of history. You've got to get this, that the church changed the world. Christianity exploded throughout the world. The church grew so much that it displaced the older Greek and Roman culture and religion. The early church was so attractive that it was an offense to the older religious system and an attraction to true life. What made the early church and the followers of Jesus so unusual was their radical unselfishness. I, I've got a quote here from a historian at the time, uh, a philosopher, an opponent of Christianity, Lucina Samosata. He was a Greek philosopher. He says this, their founder, speaking of Jesus, taught them that they should be like brothers to one another, and therefore they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. That was said as an attack. Now, we would go, yeah, that's how we're supposed to be. That's what we do. That's Sunrise Church, right? No, no, no. The average person looked upon people like that with disdain because the culture was about me, was individualistic, was about my success, my prosperity, not about others, not about giving myself away. And he wrote this to condemn the church. I think it praises the church. Kenneth Scott Latourette, he's one of the greatest historians of Christianity, and he writes about why Christianity was so different. He says this, more than any of its competitors, meaning religious cultural competitors, uh, the Greek and Roman statues and temples, more than any of its competitors, Christianity attracted all races and classes. Judaism never quite escaped from its racial bonds. Christianity, however, gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian. The Greek and Roman philosophies never really won the allegiance of the masses. They appealed primarily to the educated, the morally and socially cultured. Christianity, though, drew from the lowly and the letter, unlettered 
Yet they developed a philosophy of its own which commanded the respect of many of the educated. Christianity, too, was for both sexes, whereas its main rivals were primarily for men. You do not hear that today in liberal quarters. (laughs) Christianity revolutionizes cultures and brings equality among men and women where it goes. Uh, It says the church welcomed both rich and poor. No other religion took in so many groups and strata of society. How did the church turn the world upside down. I want you to hear this as a, a note, a footnote of history, but also a little bit of what we're doing and a little bit, a lot of bit of what we could be doing. How did the church turn their culture upside down? Historians say came down to three, hear me, revolutionary practices. They don't sound revolutionary to us, but they're revolutionary for the time. One, first is this, the idea that you would love others more than you love yourself. That was revolutionary. That was countercultural. When the Christian faith began to spread, followers of Jesus were met with suspicion because nobody gave their possessions away. Nobody gave their life away. Nobody loved unselfishly. And it was said, Oh, how they love one another. The culture around them said that. Could that be said of you? Could that be said of us? It was the overwhelming statement that we unselfishly loved, and that overturned the world. I think it could still do that. Number two uh, was the idea that you, could, you should love your enemies instead of killing them, that you should forgive without limits, that you should be reconciled without people who wronged you instead of seeking revenge. Now, this is built into our, our, actually our statutes and law, but back then it was normal. If you had an enemy, kill him before they kill you. That was normal. You were the victor, right? The whole idea of forgiveness, why would you forgive without limits? 70 times 7, that's ridiculous. You better hold a grudge because that's the only thing you hold against that person, right? Or you should be reconciled with people who wronged you? Absolutely not. You should seek revenge and destroy them because they hurt you. Then you're better than them and you survive. Christianity came in and revolutionized the world because of this. The idea of Um, other religions talking about caring for the poor and number three here is that we didn't just talk about it we did it extraordinary passion that came out of followers of jesus toward the sick and the poor you can look in history and christianity christians essentially invented hospitals orphanages relief for the poor universal human rights destroyed slavery its very foundations the idea that every human being no matter what race or class no matter strong or weak no matter what sex had universal human rights because they were all made in the image of God. These, these three things did not come out of any other culture or religion of the day of Jesus, but they came from Jesus and his followers, and these three things triumphed over evil. Now today, I would say this, that we want all these, we just don't want Jesus. The world would say these are necessary, but forget Jesus. Uh, Mark Sayers in his book, on disappearing church, he says it this way. We want the kingdom, but we don't want the king. But you can't have the kingdom without the king. <laughs> and Jesus is the king. And a culture will decay without the king. And, and reality is, you, you honestly, with integrity, cannot have any of these if there is no God. You can't. Because if there is no God, all these things are foolish, right? They are foolish. I was on a plane coming in from Sitka, and um, there's a gal in front of me, a gal beside me. And, and um, you know, I always want to try to have conversations. And, and you know, you look for a, an opening. And she opened her Bible. I'm like, well, that's easy. And uh, I said, I said, thanks, God. I said, that's a good book. She goes, it's a great book. And she's in Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2. 
And so I did what Philip did. I said, do you understand what you're reading? She's like, I don't know. It's kind of weird. I go, no, it's freaky. It's like, have you read that? Could you draw that on a piece of paper? That's crazy what's going on there. And I said, do you get the whole idea of Ezekiel? She goes, no. And we're talking and, and, um, and she's just coming back from a conference with a friend of ladies down, uh, down in uh, the Palm Springs area, which was a lot warmer than where I was coming from. And so we're just talking, and she's with Victory Outreach, one of the women's homes in Portland. And, you know, she'd been a heroin user, street, you know, prostitute, street, the whole deal, all that stuff. These ladies have been transformed from alcohol and drugs, and they're so alive with Jesus. But we're getting a little animated here. We're getting a little loud. We're talking. And I'm wondering, what do people think about us? I'm like, I don't care. And I finally said, as we got up, I said, you know, ladies, I, I thank you so much. This is encouraging. I said, um, you know, what we're talking about is foolishness. It really is. But God takes the foolish things to confound the wise. And I would rather be a fool in the eyes of man. <laughs> At that point, this guy who was sitting in the front looked over and just kind of rolled his eyes. Then in the eyes of God. And I've made my stand. What about you? This will still change a world, my friend. Jesus himself said, when he was praying to the Father in John 17, 18, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. You will not find another culture. You will not find another philosophy, another religion where the leader refused to hold on to power, refused to hold on to wealth, refused to hold on to glory, and instead chose to give, give himself away for others. And you and I are called to imitate Jesus Christ. Do the people that are far from God in your sphere of influence see that in you? Do you love others than you love more than you love yourself? Do you love your enemies and reconcile with those who have wronged you? Do you care for the poor, the sick, the widow, the orphan? I, I happen to be a little bit crazy, and I believe that the church should be irresistible. I, should, I just would have this vision that people get up in the Portland, you know, West area here, and they just think, man, it's Sunday morning, let's go to church. It's like, well, I know I was invited to brunch, but I'd rather go to church because that's where God's showing up in my family. I, I, I don't think that's the case, but I think it should be the case. I think that people should wake up and say, I want to be with other believers. I want to gather together. I want to hear God's word. I want to experience this prayer and this fellowship, this singing and this whole idea of giving myself away in the Lord's Supper. And I, I want to be a part of something. You know, the reality is that when Jesus was on the earth, he was irresistible. Some people loved him. Some people hated him. We just couldn't ignore him, right? And he changed the world. When you think about it, now that Jesus is gone, we are the body of Christ. We are the church, every one of us. We are those people in Acts chapter 2. And as much as we lean into all of these things individually, we give ourselves away, God shows up in the midst of us. And I want to pray for you right now as I want to pray for me because my heart gets hard sometimes. I'm a jerk sometimes. I'm selfish sometimes. I think about my desires sometimes. I think about what I want out of church sometimes. And how I like church to be sometimes. But I really need to think about what does God want to do here? Because he really wants to grow this church with lost people coming to Christ. But do I want that? Do you want that? Let's pray. Father, that's the challenge. We know you want the church to grow. But do we want the church to grow? Do we want lost people to come to faith? If so, then we're going to be out there and be the body of Christ, the life of Jesus, the spirit of God out there in our communities, living and breathing this with such passion that we cannot be ignored. We could be condemned, but we cannot be avoided. We can be hated, but we can't be silenced because Jesus flows through us. 
And we can be criticized, but we cannot be shut down because we love like you loved. Move our heart to love people that are far from you and see them come into your kingdom as we disciple them to be more like Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.